Good morning. All right, so our scripture this morning is Ephesians 1, 1 through 6. So if you'd like to use your pew Bibles, you'll find it on page 976. So I'll give you a minute to get there if you want. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. As you've been anticipating all week, I'm sure we're, we're talking about election and not the upcoming presidential election that I know many already have on their minds, but I wonder if even this topic would be less contentious than that one, and that's saying something. God's election, though the term doesn't show up here, the concept uh, is gleaned from Paul's words, the themes around it, predestination. God's foreknowledge, God's choosing ahead of time. Those themes have somewhat divided the church for 2,000 years. Volumes of theological expositions have been written. Seminaries have distinguished themselves along those lines. Denominations uh, have grown and even fractured along these themes of soteriology, the doctrines of salvation. Uh, So uh, we should have relative ease understanding and concluding this matter in the next 40 minutes, give or take. So first, the issue at hand. Hear it again. Paul speaks plainly. See that. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Skip to verse 11 if you have it open. wasn't read. So see how Paul continues this theme. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works out all things in accordance with the counsel of his Will, you'll hear me just slipping into the NIV as I, just even as I read from the ESV. Um, this is, I think, one of the first extended passages in Scripture that I put to memory, and it just gets rooted in there, and that's okay. That's a good thing. Uh, God's choosing, his predestination, these themes of election are absolutely true. Paul speaks of them plainly here. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable, is useful, is good. And notice that Paul simply proclaims them as truth, kind of in keeping with much of scripture. In fact, the very first line of scripture does just this, in the beginning, God 
uh, doesn't argue for God, it declares it. And Paul does the same thing in much of his teaching. He proclaims and declares, he does not argue for it. And so we will receive from this passage this morning, and I will leave you in the tension of a million and one questions that probably come, uh, just as they could from the very first line of Scripture, and have divided people and the church throughout history. But we live in this tension and rightly receive from Paul's proclamation that these are, in fact, truths of who God is. And so we we will receive and we will respond uh, simply to that this morning. Paul is saying and reminding these believers, this church, those that are followers of Jesus, and therefore all churches throughout history that would come to read uh, this passage, we receive it as encouragement and exhortation. He's reminding believers, followers of Jesus, that if you have surrendered your life to him, uh, to him, the one who surrendered his life first for you, then you have, in fact, been chosen. You have been predestined. God in his sovereignty and his goodness has seen you and known you before the foundation of the world. This is what Paul is proclaiming. You are that loved. That's Paul's purpose here. We, we saw it pretty uh, distinctly last week and I'll return to it again and again. Paul's purpose is that you are this loved church. Hear it, know it, believe it. And even though you know that in, in relationship with this holy God who has pursued you, known you, seen you, drawn you, you too have responded. By, from your perspective, from our perspective, we have taken steps towards God. We have willingly laid or surrendered things down. We've pursued Him. We've pursued His holiness. You're here. You've taken at least a few steps to be here this morning when you could be anywhere else. And so while we know that that is, that is true in relationship, we also know that God pursued first. God took those first steps. God drew us, as Paul says, before the foundations of the world. He set his heart to pursuing and drawing his sons and his daughters. Isaiah 53, the famous Isaiah 53, verse 6 says, All we, like sheep, have gone astray, and we have turned everyone to his own way. That's everyone, you and me and all others who have lived and do live. We have all turned away, everyone, to his own way, his own path, his own pursuits. Romans 5.8, Paul says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Before we ever turn back to God, away from our own path and our own way, God pursued us by sending Jesus who died on the cross. While we were still sinners, we did nothing to merit, to earn, to deserve that. God's love is that great. And that's what Paul is hammering away at here for the Ephesians who he sees are in a crisis mode who desperately need to be reminded of this love, which they knew at first, but have now been drifting from. For years from now, Jesus will say to them in a letter that is preserved in the book of Revelation, you have abandoned your first love. At this point, the Ephesians had not yet, but Paul heard that they were drifting. We don't know fully what had happened or how that took place, but just that the drift from love can take place. And Paul is reminding them who they are, their identity, 
because of who God is and what he has done. They are this loved. And so we're going to hear that and receive that again and again. And Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians in chapter 2, that we were in fact worse off than lost, orphaned sheep, running, rebellious sinners. We were in fact dead. That's the imagery he uses. Ephesians 2, 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, in our sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Don't you love the magnolia tree? We were just driving yesterday. Uh, we were, I, I was asking my kids, do you think the magnolias will have bloomed on the way into uh, the Trilogy neighborhood? There's a number of magnolias, and they're just starting. But the magnolia tree looks like dead sticks until these white, beautiful flowers just emerge out. Before any leaves even come, these flowers just come out of these dead-looking sticks. So just another picture that could be duplicated in many places around us in this season of how life emerges from dead. You look at that magnolia tree and say, I don't know if that one's ever coming back after the winter. It's just dead looking. And then these beautiful flowers emerge out of it. While we were dead in our sins, God made us alive with Christ. That's the work he is all about. So let that wash over you. Beyond even the imagery of just a wandering lost sheep, or an orphaned son and daughter whom God finds, pursues, rescues, saves, delivers. Paul goes to the uttermost image. We were dead. And as far as I know, dead people don't do a good job pursuing God. Not pursuing much of anything, for that matter. So we let this thought, this concept wash over us. It is humbling that God loves us that much. And that is Paul's point. So how could these truths... These doctrines of election and predestination, God's foreknowledge and choosing to save, how could they lead us to anything but praise, but worship in all humility? That's Paul's point. This one long run-on sentence that we're taking now weeks to unpack, it's worthy of that, but from verse 3 to 14 in the Greek is basically one thought. One sentence, one heart cry of Paul as he begins to address this church. And it begins and ends and then revolves around praise. If you have your Bible still open, look at it there. Verse 3, blessed be, praise be to the God and Father. Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 12, to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, to the praise of his glory. This is where Paul is leading us, reminding who God is and what he has done. And then therefore our response is nothing but praise. Praise the God who saves sinners. Specifically, he's writing to these believers, reminding them of their identity. And while this letter can also be received by those who do not yet know God, we are Rightly addressing it as Paul intended it, written for the encouragement and the exhortation of those who have been following Jesus and whose love has grown cold. And so we receive that too. Lord, humble us by that reminder of how great is your love, how deep, how long, how high, how wide 
that we would know this love that surpasses knowledge, that we would be filled to the fullness of God. So how then, because I know you're probably asking the questions, have these truths then led to division and discord, pride, and nothing less? How is it possible that the knowledge and this revelation that God chose us to be in him, that that could puff us up? As if, as if there were something in us that God foresaw and foreknew and said, oh, I, I need that one on my team. Look how righteous and holy they are. I'm going to save that one. That's the heart of the Pharisee. As if God was operating some kind of big fantasy draft and who needed to be on his team. Arrogance and superiority have no place in our salvation. Being chosen and adopted simply proves how lost and orphaned we were. And it shows us the depth of God's love and mercy. For those that boast in their salvation, Paul said, I boast in nothing. I'll boast in Jesus and him alone. I am nothing. For those who boast in their salvation as if it was a result of their own pursuits or righteousness or holiness, that may in fact prove that their salvation is spurious or at best not understood whatsoever. And there have been many who would believe this to be true, that they are more holy and righteous, but the very opposite is true and proclaimed throughout Scripture. The story isn't about man's goodness. It's about God's. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 28. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This is God's will and way. He is that big and that great. And when he chooses you and me to love, to pursue, and to save, in contrast to everything that we have done or not done, we see how great and holy and mighty and merciful and loving is this God. If anyone had reason to boast in self-righteousness, it was Paul. And he says as much in a couple different places in Scripture. Philippians chapter 3, he says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. I mean, he, he, he works on this religion versus relationship in every one of his writings. It's so crucial. It's so central. And so he's speaking to the Philippians, reminding them of how deeply they've been loved, but also saved what they've been saved from, and there's nothing they can boast in of themselves. He says, if anyone has reason to have confidence in, in earthly things, in flesh, and choices, and decisions, and heritage, it would be me. And then he goes on. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day, right? He's, I'm, I'm born into the family of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I became a Pharisee. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. That meant, didn't mean he was perfect, but it meant every time he strayed from the law or became ceremonially unclean, he followed the regulations of the law to enter back into righteousness. So he's blameless. Look and see, he's asking anyone who would challenge that. Whatever gain though I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ 
Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. If anyone could boast, I could boast, he said. And it's worth nothing. I count it as loss, except for this one thing, to know who God is, to know what he's done, and to respond to that with my whole life. Again, in his letter to Timothy, this first letter to Timothy that we have in the scriptures, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, Paul says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. So line that up against what he just said about his heritage amongst the Jews, about how righteous he had lived, about how he had followed everything written in the, in the Old Testament law. And here's what he says about himself. I'm the foremost sinner. I'm, I, I, was, I was as far from God as anyone could possibly be. That's a staggering thought. Religion does not save. Jesus saves. And so he goes on to Timothy. He says, I've received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might be displayed His perfect patience and example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Now to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The recognition that God has chosen us rightly leads to humility and to praise. And Paul models that. And Paul says, if God so loved me, then no one is beyond his reach, his grasp, and his love. And yet those who would reject these doctrines of predestination and election, very difficult to do, but those who would explain them away through some form of exegetical gymnastics could just as easily be susceptible to pride as those who receive them as if they were something. Because if God did not foreknow, but simply simply loved and allowed anyone to then respond to his revelation, then if, then if you or if me found God, made it, worked harder, came to understand, you know, proverbially, we, made, we found the path up the mountain to him. I have much more reason to boast. But if in fact, when I had no hope, When according to Paul, I was dead in my own sin, without God and without hope, not even looking for him, he saw me, pursued me, saved me. Then to him be all glory forever and ever. Amen. And he can have my life. There is no room for pride in our salvation. There is only room for love and the will of God our Father, who has adopted us according to his Good pleasure. He delighted to do so. Continuing that passage in Ephesians chapter 2, I'm guessing that a few of you are familiar with these words. Verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift, a gift from God, not the result of your works that no one can boast. There is no boasting in your salvation. It is a gift. We'll dig in, we'll unpack that a little bit maybe in a few weeks. What is the gift? Is it our salvation? Is it grace? Is it faith? Yeah. Everything is from him. 
And Paul knew this better than anyone. It's how he can write with this passion and humility. It wasn't at all his pleasure and will to become a light to the Gentiles. It was God's alone. Paul at that time was hell-bent on persecuting the church, destroying it, believing in fact he was serving God by removing these blasphemers who proclaimed Jesus as God. And yet until the Damascus Road, when Jesus met him and ironically blinded him in order that he could truly see that the eyes of his heart would be enlightened, Paul was on a path fully away from him, hell-bent. Pharisee of Pharisees. Yet Jesus loved him so much, he pursued him, saved him, and Paul would be that model of God's saving grace in and for anyone. Today's Pharisee, you think the Pharisees have died out as a people? Absolutely not. They are alive and well. Today's Pharisee runs with an obsession with being right. It has often been said, you can be right or you can be in relationship. And the Pharisee runs with this obsession to be right, as if worth and identity and value and security can be found in rightness. And let me ask you, is if you are righter, can you be more saved? And so what is it but pride and likely fear? Instead, if we're going to be obsessed with anything, we're obsessed with grace and love. That we could fall in love more deeply with God and with one another. And so how is it possible that these, these doctrines trip and tangle us up? Only this, that we miss the purpose of the promise. We miss the purpose of what Paul was proclaiming. Paul's writing again to these believers who need this reminder of who they are in Christ. In fact, they are this loved, more than they could ever imagine. To him who is able to do more, immeasurably, more than all we could ask or imagine, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus for now and forevermore. Amen. This is his purpose in proclaiming these mysterious doctrines, and he'll admit it in this chapter, the mysteries of God are beyond us. This is who God is and who we are. But his purpose is not to argue for it and is not to lead us into debate and confusion, but to remind us of who God is and who we are and therefore how we can live. If Paul is writing to a people who are drifting or who have become distracted, or perhaps are discouraged because of what's happening in their life, or their family, or their city, or the world. Anyone relate to that, by the way? Anyone prone to drifting from the values you hold, the Lord that you love? Anyone distracted? Is there any number of things that just constantly demand our attention, which we've invited right into our lives? So distracted, divided solely from our purpose. Anyone discouraged? If we're not running from the world, then we're truly looking into it. How could we not at least be somewhat prone to discouragement? It's not getting any better. Is it even worth it? 
Lord, take me now. So if Paul's writing to that church, we receive that. We receive this reminder with this passion. What he's saying here is no matter what happens, no matter what happens in your life, in your church, in the city, in the world, whether evil or persecution, whether pain or suffering, even your own sin, no matter what, you are loved, you're secure, nothing can separate you from the love of God. He chose us before the foundation of the world to be holy, to be seen as blameless because of Jesus. And now he has adopted us into his family, guaranteeing his inheritance. This is what Paul wants you and me to hear. And if this is who God is, do you think he's going to fail you now? Do you think he's going to leave you now? church? Do you think he's sleeping on his promise for all eternity? But instead of receiving this reminder and responding with praise and with worship, we immediately have a million and one questions, don't we? Our logical brains are often overeducated for our own good minds start going, well, wait a, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, by my, I'm pretty sure not everyone comes to put their faith and trust in Jesus. In fact, aren't there millions who have never even heard of the name Jesus? Uh, why me? Why us? How could God possibly be loving if he chose some and not others? Isn't, isn't that the case? If Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. So those who had never had an opportunity to live and breathe, to hear the name Jesus. Jesus said in John 3, 18, whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. How could, how could God continue to create without choosing? Would he thus send them to hell? And on and on we go, don't we? The million and one questions. And by the way, what does predestination and election have to do with our evangelism? If God chooses and saves whom he will, what, what, what point is there in Making that message known. And you're ready for me to answer every one of those, aren't you? But we must tread carefully here. And as I began to write, as I have written much on these themes and topics and studied them deeply, and I essentially wrote two sermons this week, and God convicted me and reminded me that Paul does not lead us there. Paul does not argue those things here. And so we remain here. We receive this reminder again. We don't scurry off into the, the margins of this debate. While the significance of it is vital. And so I do believe I'll bring us there and, and lead us hopefully into the worship of the paradox of God's love next Sunday. But I want to leave us here. Receiving the very intent and purpose that Paul wrote for the reminder of the incredible, powerful, mysterious, saving love of God. We've seen this the last two weeks, and it's worth, it's worth it. It's all worth it. It's the purpose of why we're in this pursuit of study. I hope that many of you will say, Ben, you've preached that message. You've preached that message. Do we get that message? 
You are loved, you are chosen, you are adopted, redeemed, blessed, rich and powerful. Never forget it, never drift from it, never lose sight of it, church. Believe it, know it, then live it. And praise the God who saves sinners. Praise the God who saves you. And some of you are satisfied right there. I love this. I love meeting. I mean, I'm, I'm more prone to the million and one questions. <laughs> and it is refreshing. I think we can err on the side of, well, that's just God. So, okay, uh, don't, don't default to that. Wrestle, strive, long. We'll do some of that work next week, Lord willing. But I am refreshed by those who come with that simple, if not childlike, beautiful faith that say, I love this. A passage I put up by a pastor, commentator, Tony Merida. Encountering mystery should be a cue to start worshiping. Oh, this is beyond me. And that is awesome. Praise God. Praise the God that stretches every capacity that is within me. And yet reminds me that he is a God of love of redemption, of salvation, of mercy, of forgiveness, of grace. And so some of us are ready right there to respond with worship and thanksgiving and praise. Others may be wondering, how how can I know? I I don't know if I'm one of those chosen. I, I feel like I'm on a path toward God. Is he drawing me? What I would say to you is draw near to him. Come to him. And as you come, thank him for drawing you. I still haven't met someone who has truly said, I long to love God and trust Jesus, but I am not chosen. But I've met plenty who have looked into the eyes of God and have said, I have no interest and have walked away. And others who have only wanted to follow Jesus on their own terms and have walked away sad like the rich young man of Matthew 19 and Mark 10. So we come to Jesus, even this morning, every one of us, whether it is, whether your recognition is it, it might be for the first time that you were truly coming to him. I I don't care how many songs you've sung, prayers you've made, uh, amount you've given or served, communions you've taken and received. You may be coming aware that for the first time you are actually drawing near to the heart of God the Father, not the heart of religion, and do so. And as you come, say, thank you for drawing me. Receive from him. Worship him. And it may be for the 10,000th time that we are humbled yet again by the reminder of God's incredible love for us. And we leave the paradox for a moment. Because scripture speaks of it much, but not here. Here, Paul reminds us, I'll read these verses again. In fact, I'll invite the team to come as I start to read these verses from chapter 1. Praise be, praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Be content, church, to respond to that promise. Respond with praise, with worship, in love and thanksgiving, with all humility, and leave your million and one questions. Leave those remaining doubts for a moment and come to the table and be reminded that at that first table, when he broke that bread and he shared the cup with his disciples, he had washed their feet as a servant. And he was about to go to the cross to die. 
How could we come to this table with anything but humility, with awe, with worship, and with praise that he is drawing us? And so be drawn to him. Who am I that the highest king should welcome me? I was lost, but he brought me in. Oh, his love for me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. And that's not even enough. Those are human words. We praise you. We bring you worship. We are humbled. I pray that the prayers of your people here would be drawn from a heart that ultimately can't even express them into human words. Holy Spirit, translate them as Jesus, you are interceding even now for us before the Father. And we shake our heads. Chosen. Adopted. Foreknown. Before the foundation of the world. Oh, your love for us. We have not even begun to comprehend it. It is that deep. Help us come to know it. To know this love that surpasses knowledge. That we would be filled to all the measure of the fullness of God. Now to you, who can do greater than all we could ask or imagine. To you be glory in your church, in us today as we go from here. Bless your sons and daughters with a renewed hope, faith, grace to serve you, to love you, and to love those around them. All for your glory and for our joy, we pray. Amen.